I'm sure that most of us present here this morning have had the experience of having someone show up on our doorstep that we have not seen for a long period of time. Maybe it was a friend or a relative or a classmate or a roommate that you had not seen for months or maybe even for years. If you've had that kind of experience, then you know what it's like, the surprise, the excitement, the shock. Maybe you even can remember now as I'm saying this, how surprised you were and how you felt when that happened to you most recently or a while back. With that in mind, think with me about the beloved Apostle John. He personally and literally walked with the Lord Jesus Christ for over three years. But then after the resurrection and 40-day post-resurrection ministry, the Lord Jesus ascended back to heaven. Sixty years later, Jesus appeared to the Apostle John after John had been banished to the lonely island of Patmos. Try to imagine that. There is no indication that the Lord Jesus had appeared to John or had verbally spoken to John for over 60 years until that glorious day on the island of Patmos. The incident is recorded for us in Revelation chapter 1. So turn with me in your Bible to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And please follow along as I read verses 9 through 18, which will be our Easter text for our time in the Word this morning. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of, of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades 
and of death. No matter how you felt when your friend or relative appeared to you after a lengthy absence, you did not feel like John on this occasion. Not only was John surprised and shocked, he was humbled and he was in awe because he stood face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory and holiness. Verse 17 says, John fell at his feet as dead. This is often the response when humans are confronted with the awesome glory and holiness of the Lord. In fact, I want us to look at a few examples of this to prepare the way for our consideration of this passage. So we'll look at several uh, examples, several stories, just to lead into this. So back up with me into the Old Testament, to the book of Judges. That's the seventh book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, then Judges, chapter 13. As we look at these stories, we'll just keep working to the right, working through a few examples in the Old Testament, to take us back to Revelation chapter 1. Here in Judges 13, God informs a man by the name of Manoah that he and his wife will have a son who will be tremendously strong. This is the announcement of the birth of Samson, who was renowned for his strength. But the thing I want us to notice in this passage is Manoah's response to the presence of God. We'll pick up the story in verse 17. Judges 13, verse 17. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, that when your words come to pass we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Now notice this response. Verse 22, and Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. What an incredible response. We shall surely die because we have seen God. How different that is from what we hear about today. Today, People claim to have visions of God, visions of Jesus Christ. They say Jesus came to talk to them. One man I even read about said Jesus came to visit him in the bathroom while he was shaving. And people make these claims, and then they take their show on the road, charging $2,000 a night to tell their story. That wasn't Manoah's response. His response was, Honey, get your things together. We're going to die. This is it. We've seen God. We're dead. Job also illustrates what our attitude 
really is when we come face to face with the thrice holy God. Keep turning to the right past the Psalms and Proverbs, or just before the Psalms and Proverbs, the book of Job, verse uh, chapter 42. Job chapter 42. This was after God had come to Job and questioned him and, and had appeared to him and interacted with him. And notice Job's response. Job 42, verse 5. He says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. In other words, I've known about you, God. I've heard about you. Job was a believer in God, a a very righteous believer in God. I've known about you through the ear gate, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Again, one of the ways it becomes obvious that few people today really know God intimately, even within Christianity, is by all the talk about self. Self Self-love, self-confidence, self-awareness, self-esteem. When Job encountered the living God, his response was to abhor self. He recognized his utter and complete and absolute sinfulness and unworthiness. The same thing can be seen in the life of Isaiah the prophet. Keep turning to the right past the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, then Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 1. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. By the way, Isaiah just puts a historical note here to let us know the timing. He doesn't give us the whole story, but we do know that Uzziah died after God struck him with leprosy because of his pride. So in that context, that historical background, Isaiah says, In the same year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Above it, above this throne, stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, again, Isaiah's response is instructive. I said, woe is me. For I am undone. I am destroyed. I am falling apart. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah saw the Lord in this vision, he recognized his sinful unworthiness. You see, beloved, whenever men and women saw God, whenever men and women encountered God, the response was always the same. They were overwhelmed by their sinfulness and their unworthiness. 
And one of the reasons why I don't believe all the, the people running around today saying they've seen God is because if they really had seen God, they would be huddled up in a corner somewhere confessing their sin. That is the response of sinful man to holy God. Now, it would be easy to assume, well, yeah, you, you know, Brian, you're showing us these examples in the Old Testament. That's just more of an Old Testament idea. No, you see the exact same kind of response in the New Testament in relation to Jesus. Turn over into the New Testament to the first book, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 records the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. And we read in verse 1, Now after six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. The disciples realized they were in the very presence of God. And what was their response? They fell on their faces in fear. Turn over to the next gospel, the gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Very next book of the New Testament, the gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verse 35. We read, On the same day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let me tell you, it is frightening to be in a boat that is about to sink. But it's even more frightening to be in the same boat with God. Verse 40 says they feared the storm but verse 41 says that when they realized who this was, they feared exceedingly. In the next chapter, we see the same thing. Look at chapter 5, verse 24. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. 
Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. When this woman realized what had happened to her, that, that this could, nothing could cure her except the power of God, this was the power of God, she was terrified, fearing and trembling. She realized she had touched God. Look at the next book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. Here we see Peter's response to an incident in our Lord's ministry. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. It says, Then Jesus got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And Jesus sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, immediately, that would have raised concern in Peter's mind. You don't go out into the deep to catch fish in the Sea of Galilee. You're throwing nets. You're going to throw nets over, and if you throw nets in the deep, the fish just swim down deeper. You have to catch the fish in the shallow part where the net can come over them and go to the bottom of the the lake, and then you can scoop them up. So Jesus says, go out into the deep. But Simon answered and said, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. It's almost as if Peter's saying, Lord, we know fishing. You stick to teaching, we'll stick to fishing, all right? Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In the midst of the chaos of all these fish, Peter suddenly realized that only God could do this. Only God could do such a thing. And when Peter realized Jesus was God, what was his response? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Turn over just a few chapters to chapter 8 of Luke's Gospel. Chapter 8, verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demons into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him 
that he would not command them to go into the abyss. The abyss. Now I heard of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Now you would expect Luke to say, and they all rejoiced. This problem guy in our neighborhood has finally been dealt with. No more bad neighbors. That wasn't their response. Look. They were afraid. They were afraid. Listen, it's a fearful thing to have a man in your community who is so demonized that he runs around naked, breaking chains, hanging around the tombs, but it's even more frightening to have God in your neighborhood. And that's what they realized. Whenever men really begin to realize God is present, the accompanying fear is the accompanying response is fear, reverence, and humility. That was John's response in Revelation chapter one. So let's go back there to consider his experience in Revelation chapter one. The apostle John was banished to the island of Patmos because of his faithfulness to the word of God. Sometime during his 18-month banishment, the resurrected, glorified Christ appeared to him. He tells us about it beginning in verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. John tells us that this took place on the Lord's Day, which is a phrase that appears in many early Christian writings to refer to Sunday. The reason why Sunday is referred to as the Lord's Day is because it was on Sunday, the first day of the week, that our Lord was raised from the dead. In time, the early church, even though they were Jewish, the early church changed their meeting day from Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath day, to Sunday, which is the Lord's Day. On this particular Lord's Day, John was supernaturally enabled to see this vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ. That's what he means by the phrase, I was in the Spirit. It is a reference to being supernaturally lifted out of the normal world which we experience with our normal senses. John was in a different realm, if you will, when he saw this vision. And he tells us it was preceded by a loud voice. This was to get John's attention and to indicate the seriousness of, of, of what is about to happen. John says the voice was like a trumpet. In the Old Testament time, the sound of the trumpet became the symbol of being called into God's presence because a trumpet would sound calling the people of God together. In the Old Testament, this was the common reminder to gather for, to, to come into God's presence, and that's what John is about to experience. He is going to be in the very presence of God, God the Son. 
In verse 11, this voice said to him, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Jesus identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. By the way, this same wording appears in verse 8 of this chapter. And some commentators take that verse as a reference to God the Father. And that is certainly possible. But if, even if verse 8 does refer to God the Father, this verse clearly refers to God the Son. Jesus appeared to John to reveal to him the visions of this book. And John was instructed to write the visions down in a book and send them to seven literal churches. They were seven literal churches of ancient Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Interestingly, the order in which they appear is the route a messenger would follow when delivering mail or other messages. The starting point would be Ephesus, and then the route would go clockwise, ending up in Laodicea. The cities were anywhere from 30 to 45 miles apart. Verse 12, John tells us, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches mentioned in the previous verse, and the same seven churches addressed in chapters 2 and 3. John says he saw, I saw seven golden lampstands. This picture depicts what is elsewhere taught in the New Testament, and that is the fact that the Lord Jesus wants His church to be a light in a dark world. And by the way, it is His church. He is the head of the church, not the board of elders, not the pastor, not the vote of the congregation. He is the head of the church, and He is the one who defines the purpose of the church, and His purpose for His church is to shine the light of the glory of God. Paul told the believers in the church at Philippi, do all things without grumbling and complaining, that you may become blameless and innocent children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Listen to this. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's what our Lord wants us to be. Non-complaining, non-grumbling, non-arguing, blameless, innocent children of God who shine as lights in the world. Our individual lives are supposed to shine forth the glory of Christ wherever we go, at work, at play, at school, wherever it happens to be. And so should we corporately shine forth the glory of Christ as a church. Let me say it very plainly, beloved. God has put us here in this valley to be a lampstand. That's our goal. That's our job description. That's what this vision symbolizes. In verse 13 John says, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. This, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The phrase Son of Man comes from Daniel 7.13, and it is a reference to the Messiah. So John sees Messiah Jesus in the midst of His churches. This is such an important point to grab hold of. The Lord Jesus is in the midst of His churches. He's not out there somewhere. 
He is not unconnected. He's involved. It's so easy for us to have this picture of the Lord as someone who is distant. You know, He's way off in heaven. He's he's out of touch with our lives, but nothing could be further from the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ is involved in His churches. He is intimately involved in the lives of His people. He knows everything about us corporately and everything about us individually. He sees the good and the bad. He knows our lives and our hearts thoroughly. On the positive side, this should be a great source of comfort and strength. When the going gets tough, our Lord knows what we are going through. It's a comfort to know that even in this huge universe, I'm not lost in the crowd because the Lord Jesus Christ knows me personally. In fact, it's humbling to realize that even though the Lord knows me so thoroughly, He still loves me. And even though I fail Him, it's a comfort to know that He knows my heart and He knows that I love Him even when my actions don't show it like I should. If it weren't for the omniscience of the Lord Jesus, frankly, there would be days when He wouldn't know that I love Him like I do. Even when I blow it, I have confidence that He knows my heart, He knows my contrition, He knows my repentance, and He knows I love Him. That's a great assurance to me. On the negative side, the omniscience of the Lord Jesus should restrain us from actions or thoughts that are not pleasing to Him. He not only knows what we do, He knows what we think. He knows our thoughts. We can't keep any secrets from Him. The omniscience of the Lord Jesus ought to be a deterrent to sin. He is in the midst of His churches. And He is intimately aware of each and every one of us. Notice how John describes the Lord in this vision. He says, Jesus was was clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. That was the garment of the priest and the judge. The Lord Jesus is both. To those who reject Him, He is their final judge. To those who have embraced Him, He is our high priest. Jesus Christ is the great high priest of His church. There are no other legitimate human priests who mediate between us and God. Jesus is the only one. Human priests who try to usurp that role, are foolishly trying to take a role that belongs to Christ alone. He is our great high priest. According to Hebrews 4.15, He can sympathize with our weaknesses. Therefore, we are encouraged to come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and grace in time of need. I hope you take advantage of that blessed offer. Jesus is our great high priest, and he is the judge of the universe. John continues his description in verse 14. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. The whiteness of our Lord's hair corresponds to the Ancient of Days mentioned in Daniel 7.9. It speaks of eternality, and it speaks of purity. The Lord Jesus Christ has the same eternality and the same purity as God the Father. John also tells us at the end of the verse that his eyes were like a flame of fire. 
This speaks of his piercing judgment of sin. His piercing eyes see everything. They penetrate into the deepest depths of the soul. There's nothing hid from his sight. He is moving in and among his churches to inspect his church and to inspect our lives. And his piercing eyes see everything. Verse 15 says, His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Fine brass speaks of divine judgment. The bronze altar in the temple was related to sacrifice for sin and divine judgment on it. In the wilderness, Moses was instructed to lift up a bronze serpent as a substitute for the judgment of the people. Therefore, when Jesus appeared with feet like fine brass, that is a further reference to his judgment on sin. He is going to return someday to judge the people of this earth, but in chapters 2 and 3, we see him judging his church, evaluating his church. He is exercising chastening authority. His judgment of this world will be for the purpose of condemnation, but his judgment of his church is for the purpose of purifying us and chastening us. That's what we see in chapters 2 and 3. The end of this verse says his voice was like the sound of many waters. I know many of you have stood beside Niagara Falls or Victoria Falls and heard the roar. That's how full and powerful his voice sounded. His voice is so powerful that one day, according to John 5, he is going to call forth all who are in the graves, and they will all come forth, some to the resurrection of condemnation, some to the resurrection of life. He is the ultimate authority. And that comes out further in the next verse, verse 16. He had in his right hand seven stars, Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. According to verse 20, these seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. And the fact that the Lord Jesus held them in his right hand is an indication of his sovereign possession and control. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword that speaks of his role as judge Isaiah 11.4 says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth. Our Lord will one day judge the people of this earth with His word, and He will also judge the Antichrist with the breath of His mouth. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of His mouth. Revelation 19 describes the appearance of Jesus during the second coming in this manner. Out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword that with it he should strike the nations. Jesus is going to judge those who have attacked his people. This would have been a great comfort to John in his situation of persecution. The last phrase here in verse 16 says, His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And if you want an explanation of that phrase, all you have to do is stand outside and try to stare at the sun. See how long that lasts. A second, two, maybe, before you are forced to close your eyes. 
Beloved, this is the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his blazing glory. It's quite a contrast to the baby in a manger in Bethlehem. It's quite a contrast to the suffering man of sorrows crowned with thorns hanging on a cross. This is the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder verse 17 says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. As we saw in the introduction, this kind of response was common when men came to the realization that they were being confronted with the presence of the thrice holy God. But this is even more significant, and let me explain why. What a contrast this is to when John was with Jesus in the upper room on the night before the crucifixion. Do you remember what took place on that night? The Bible tells us John leaned his head on the chest of Jesus. John leaned his head on the chest of Jesus. But on this occasion, John fell to the feet of Jesus as dead. So the Lord held out comfort to John. At the end of verse 17, it says, But he laid his right hand on me. John knew that hand. He'd seen that hand many times. He'd seen that hand touch the untouchable. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Notice that Jesus didn't say, Don't be afraid, John. You're okay. You're a good guy. You're pretty good. No, no, absolutely not. Jesus said, don't be afraid. And then he turned John's focus away from self. John was to take comfort in the one who is the first and the last. Beloved, when we stand in the presence of God, there is no comfort in looking to ourselves, to our works, to our deeds, to our goodness. The only comfort is looking to the eternally righteous one, the Lord Jesus, who died for us and rose for us. And that's why the next verse says this, as the passage sort of reaches a crescendo, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. That is one of the greatest Easter verses in all the Bible. Jesus said, I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, I have the authority over death and I have the authority over the place of death. That's what Jesus is saying. The Lord decides who lives, who dies, and when. Death takes the body Hades takes the soul. But Jesus has ultimate authority over both. Needless to say, that's authority. Jesus controls who will enter death and who will come out of death. He controls who will enter Hades and who will not enter Hades. What an indescribable comfort this is to those of us who trust Christ with our lives and with our eternal destiny, He is the one who has control, sovereign control over all of it. Do you know this one? 
Do you know the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Understand from this vision that if He is not your Lord and Savior, He is your judge. So where do you stand? He has died. He has been raised. He is alive forevermore. And now He offers eternal life to those who will trust Him. Have you trusted Him? If not, you need to do that today. Let's bow together. As you bow your head in closing this morning, please hear me. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you need to do that right now. You need to confess to Him that you are a sinner. He knows that already. But you need to acknowledge that in your own heart. And you need to receive by faith Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. If you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, worship our risen, glorified Lord. Worship Him and open your life to Him so He can point out anything that needs to be changed. Remember, He's still actively involved in His church today. He's still actively involved in our lives today. So we should lay ourselves before Him just as John did. Father, as we consider this really indescribable vision that John had of the Lord Jesus on the island of Patmos, oh, how it stretches us and takes us beyond our view of Jesus as a baby in a manger or even our view of Jesus as the one who is on a cross suffering being sneered at and jeered at by those who pass by. This is the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ in all of his sovereignty. What a powerful picture. What a great source of comfort to us. But as we see this picture of the Lord Jesus, we can't help but think about those around us who do not know him, who are not right with him, because we see in this vision that If they are not right with him, then he is their judge. And he will surely judge them someday. So, Father, our prayer is that you would be pleased to open their hearts this morning, this day, that they would turn to Jesus Christ by faith to receive him. And for those of us who have, may we worship our risen, glorified Lord and see him as he really is. And may we lay our lives before him and open our lives to him so he can point out anything that needs to be changed in us. We pray these things for his glory and his sake. Amen.